0: Oma jnana timirandasyat jnana jana shalakaya Chakshurummeretam jenatas mei svigurve namah Ajunalambato bujokanakabadato Sankitanay kapitaro kamalaya takso Vishvambaro dvijavaro yoga dharmapalo Pandi Jagat Priya Kuro Karuna Votaro Shri Gauri Guru Parampara Ki Jai, jai. Harinaam Prabhu Ki Jai, jai. Shri Maharaj Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai, jai. Shri Sri की Ki Jai, jai. Bhakti Vilanta Prabhupada Ki jai, jai Bhakti Raksak की Maharaj Ki Jai, jai. So we're reading from the introduction to Bhagavad Gita's feeling and philosophy. Last session we read the first half, approximately, of the introduction. And for those of you who weren't here last time, the format is that I'm reading and as I feel inspired to do, then I'll stop and comment on what's been read. And along with reading and discussing, last time my asked the devotees all to read some things that came up during the discussion in the last session. And those things were the nectar of the bhakti Bhaktirasamrita Sindhu's section. Which wave did we ask the devotees to read from Vaisheshika? Well, which is qualities? Is it the second wave? Second wave? Which division of the ocean? Chidahari? Southern Southern division, which wave? As we discussed last time, Bhakti-rasamrita sindhu. Sindhu means what? Drop. uh, Sindhu means ocean. Bindu means drop. Sindhu means ocean. So, Rupa Goswami has written his book, Bhakti-rasamrita sindhu, book about devotion, and he's used the metaphor of an ocean. Ocean of what? Bhakti-rasa, rasamrita. As Prabhupada rendered a nectar of the ocean. And he's divided that ocean into four divisions. Eastern, which we're going to turn clockwise or counterclockwise. Eastern, Southern, Western, Northern. And in each of those divisions, then there are waves or chapters. And we discussed this a little bit. In the first division, which is the Eastern division, we have a description of bhakti, the nature of bhakti that Rupa Goswami is going to discuss about. In the second division, we have a discussion of the practice of bhakti, sadhana bhakti, which is divided into vaidi and raganuga. In the third wave of that eastern division, we have a discussion of what comes after sadhana bhakti, bhava bhakti. That's the third of the eastern division. And the fourth wave is, how many kinds of bhakti are there, Rathakali? I mean, basically... There are lots, actually. <laughs> it's not a fair question. Sadhna bhakti, Bhav bhakti, and Prem bhakti. So those are the four waves, of the first division. And then we turn to the southern division. After bhakti has been described in these ways, then beginning description of bhakti rasa involves description of the what constitutes rasa. After Prem, Prem is about the aesthetic experience of rasa. So in the first wave of that. Division, we have a discussion of the vibhav, it's called. Vibhav. Vibhav means, to reiterate, to remind you all, cause. it means cause. Now, you can see how inadequate the English language is because bhakti rasa is not something that's caused. In other words, it's not something that at one point didn't exist and we do something and it exists. It's always existing. Krishna preem Shravanadi kore it's always existing, it's eternal. Sadhya kabunai, by hearing and chanting, it, that eternal reality manifests in our heart. So, cause, stimulus, we gave an example. Can anyone remember the example I gave? Yes? You so, said, just like if you have a daughter, and you have deep love for your daughter, and then you walk in and you just see her shoes somewhere, then immediately that will stimulate that. Right. So that, that causes the love that's already there to come out. So there are vibhav, that's one of the uh, elemental constituents of rasa. And that vibhav is divided into two sections, alambana and udipana. And the reason we discussed all this is because in the midst of reading from the introduction, we came across a couple of Krishna's qualities with regard to his speech. Because Bhagavad Gita is his speech. He Speaking to Arjuna and all of us, So we found out there were four wonderful uh, things about Krishna's speech that Rupa Goswami has pointed out of the 64 qualities of Krishna, four of them. So from that, we began to discuss about what these qualities of Krishna are all about. So I asked you to read from the Nectar Devotion all the qualities of Krishna, 64 qualities of Krishna. Actually, there are more than that. In Krishna Sandarbaji Goswami has given 84 qualities of Krishna. And of course, there's more than that, too. But Rupa Goswami has picked out those particular 64 qualities and in the course of listing them, he's, as you've read, those of you who did your homework, he gives examples from various scriptures to illustrate what he means by those qualities and how Krishna has those qualities. So those qualities are vibhav, either in the classification of alambana vibhav or udipana vibhav, depending upon how we Talk about them. If we talk about them independently of Krishna, so to speak, of his swarup, then they're in the classification of vudipana. If we talk about him in relation to his swarup, his form itself, then they're classified as alambana. Alambana vibhava has two divisions, vishaya alambana, ashraya alambana. What it means is this, vishaya and ashray. Vishaya means object of love, and ashraya means the shelter of that love. So Krishna is the object of love for all the devotees, and the devotees are the vessel of that love. Krishna is the perfect object of love. Radha is the perfect vessel of love who contains that love. We should also know another thing, just as a side point. Krishna is rasa and rasika. means he also tastes rasa. So he's the object of love, and his devotees are also, in a way, an object of love for him. So, vibhav the idea is that love is requires an object to love and then a lover who possesses that love. And then Udipana means more like like stimulus and all the qualities come there and other things if you read on and after your devotion you'll find the flute and and different and, uh, his dress and different things about Krishna related to him will be Udipana stimulus for love relative to the devotee's particular kind of love. Certain qualities will, if Krishna tightens his belt, as if he's about to fight with a demon, and those cowherds will all tighten their belts as well. If they see him or hear of him doing that, that will rouse their particular kind of love, for example. So I hope that you had a chance to look over those qualities. The idea here, of course, is simply this. It's just to become absorbed in hearing and chanting about Krishna. Because without a doubt, if you do that, your life will be perfect. He is the perfect object of love. The more we create opportunities to hear about him with no other agenda, the more we'll develop love for him. We can speak volumes and volumes of philosophy to try to convince people, but it's all to convince them of this, and ourselves as well, our life can be perfect just by sitting and talking about Krishna. And there are examples. That's what Vrindavan is. That's what they do. Day and night, thinking about, talking about, and the, the result of this is that Krishna comes there. What does he say? <maham> I'm not in Vaikuntha, he says. Yogi Namhurdeshuva, neither I'm in the heart of the Yogis. Where am I? Yatragayandimadbhakta. Whoever my devotees are chanting about me, that's where I am. Sridharmarsh once told us a nice story. Sitting on his veranda in the evening after the sun had gone down, and there was just a few devotees there. And he was telling the story of the alwars. Alwars were the devotees who were the precursors to Ramanuja and the Sri Sampradaya. They were mystic devotees of the Lord. And at one point, three of them were held up from their pilgrimage to have the darshan of the Lord in the temple by a rainstorm. They took shelter under a makeshift covering and they had to spend the night there. But they engaged themselves in talking about the Lord. And they witnessed that there were four in their midst and not <laughs> three. <laughs> this is the idea. I think it's said in the Bible something like, wherever three gather in my name, I'm present there. Same idea. The wonderful thing about this story, side point of this, that Sridhar Marsh was telling this story and he told it, in relation to what he was talking about at the time, which was Swami Maharaj, Prabhupada, his affectionate godbrother, and talking about his affectionate lifelong friend in the presence of a few of his disciples, Prabhupada's disciples, who had come there and taken shelter of him. There was two of them, and Sridhar Maharaj, and he was talking about Prabhupada, and then he told this story. And then he said, and tonight there is a fourth amongst us, and it is Swami Maharaj. You could feel the presence of Prabhupada there, just by speaking. It was, was such affection he had for Prabhupada. It, is, it was very endearing to all of us who had the chance to experience it. So this is what our gathering is about. To try to not just come here and listen to me. All of us sit, open our hearts, and make space for Krishna to manifest there by hearing and discussing about him. Bhagavad Gita is just a launching pad. It's an excuse to get together. The book was written about Krishna. So, I hope that most of you had the chance to read that section of Nectar Devotion. There are many wonderful qualities. And, of course, we know that only 50 of them, right? It's possible for a jiva. An individual soul to possess to a small amount, up to fifty of them. And then what? Brahman and Shiva have five more. Brahman and Shiva have up to fifty-five. And then what? And then the What about Narayan? Oh, well, he does. The the Narayan, has a- Narayan has up to 60, sixty, and Krishna has four. But nobody has. Who knows what they are? <laughs> <laughs> He displays wonderful pastimes. No other Lila Madhurdia. And he also is uh, surrounded by um, particular types of loving devotees. Prima Madhurdia. And he also plays a, a mean flute. Venu Madhurdia. <laughs> and uh, he's the most beautiful. Rupa Madhurdia. So beautiful that when he saw his own form reflected in a mirror in Dwarka, he thought, who's that? <laughs> I'm attracted to him. Hmm. Well, this is our Krishna. Brahma was telling me that he was on the internet on beliefnet.com where he talks about Krishna with people. And um, somebody said, Where's this idea that Krishna is all attractive come from? The word Krishna means black. That's all. So, where's this idea that Krishna means all attractive? Who made that up? Can you give us the verse? shiribhu vachaka shabda vachaka. It's a famous verse. I don't know where it's from, I can't recall, but it gives the grammatical explanation of how the word Krishna means all-attractive, as if we needed that. <laughs> it could have been answered in a number of ways. <laughs> it explains Krishna's all-attractive, the word Krishna means all-attractive. But let's say, what explanation do we need? People from all walks of life are attracted to Krishna. He must be all attractive. Rupa Madhurdja, Vainu Madhurdja, Lila Madhurdja, prema Madhurya. Nobody else has. Rupa Goswami gives a nice verse in Bhakti Marita He says the idea is that Narayan and Krishna are the same in Tattva. But, and this is, of course, the speciality of the Godias. When we analyze from the point of view of Rasa, Rasa Vichar, then we can say, while Krishna is superior, greater capacity to reciprocate in loving dealings. From that angle of vision, and this is the particular angle that Rupa Goswami has taken. So, nectar devotion, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, is all about this. He starts his book by saying, "Akila Rasamrita Murti." The book is about he who is the very form of aesthetic rapture itself. So. All these topics are relevant, to some extent, to the Bhagavad Gita, and we ended our discussion last time with this question: of what significance is Dira Prashanta Dwarkadish, who is peaceful, sober, statesman, a prince, this kind of hero, Dhiraprasanta Nayaka, Dhiraprasanta Nayaka of Dwarka, for that matter. We heard there's Dhiralita dhiraprasanta diruddatta diruddhata dhira in three places 4 times 3 makes 12 what are the three places dwarka mathura vrindavan perfect more perfect most perfect and then there's the pati and upapati each of those 12 could be married could be unmarried you yeah. have 24 and four divisions further then of types of heroes lovers making 92 all given in money in the very beginning, and we discussed the hero, Nayaka. Anyway, we analyzed all this to some extent, and we came to the conclusion, who is speaking the Bhagavad Gita? Which Krishna? Of course, there's one Krishna, but in which which personality, what mood, what the circumstances were, and so forth, and why are we doing this? Because we think by doing that, we may better understand something about what he's saying there. So many people have analyzed Bhagavad Gita from so many different angles of vision. This is the speciality of our Gaudiya Sampradaya, to look at Brahman and Bhagavan from this angle, so we should look at Bhagavad Gita. And when we discussed it like this, when we thought about Bhagavad Gita, we came to the question, well, what, what of what interest is this dear Prashanta Krishna of Dwarka and Bhagavad Gita to us Gaudiyas who are interested in, Primarily the Lalita Krishna of Vrindavan. So today we have to discuss a little bit that, the answer to that question. So begin the reading. From Bhagavad Gita, we come to know of Krishna's divinity. In the light of this knowledge, his village life takes on new meaning. The informal simplicity of the Brajlila is like a black backdrop that causes the valuable jewel of Krishna to shine that much more. God's acting like a human to the extent that he falls in love, as does Krishna with Radha, is indeed an expression of his divinity, one that gives us a clue as to how to approach him such that he becomes easily accessible to us. When the Absolute is overcome by love, he manifests a transcendental need that arises not out of inadequacy, but from the fullness of love. The nature of love is such that it causes one to feel both full and in need of sharing one's fullness. Krishna becomes most accessible to anyone acquainted with his inner necessity to share his love. This is the sacred secret of the Upanishads to which Sri Gita ultimately points. While establishing the general principles of Dharma, Krishna reveals the glory of Prema Dharma, the Dharma of Love itself. So the point here is that Bhagavad Gita establishes the divinity of Krishna, and that although our interest may primarily be, and should be, with Dear Lalita Nayaka of Braj, this Krishna, and not Dear Prashanta Krishna of Dwarka and the Upanishads, Mahabhu said a nice thing. Dure Harikatamrita. Shotram Upanishadam. (laughs) Dure Harikatamritam. It means those aphorisms of the Upanishads. Tattamasi, ham brahmasmi, sarvokalom vidam brahma. These aphorisms of the Upanishads, Mahaprabhu said, Dure Harikatamrita. Dure means far away. They are very far away from Harikatha. What can be derived from Harikatha? The Upanishads cannot touch that. They're far from that. Rupa Goswami in mean, his Namastakam has said what? The jewels of the Upanishads shine, and in their shine they cast some light. The whole idea of it is to cast some light on the value of Harinam. And Nam and Nami, nami are the same. Krishna and His name are the same. So, what can be derived from hearing about Krishna? Chanting about Krishna? Chanting Krishna's name? By uttering these aphorisms from the Upanishads, we cannot come close to that. we said, all these transformations of ecstasy, dure tamrita kampashu, pulakarayo, all these bhavas, this kind of change is the kind of change we really want in our life, this kind of transformation. This is all the fruit of Harinam, of hearing about Krishna. From Upanishads, we can get something valuable. We can find ourselves as a good starting point. But we don't want to stop there. Therefore, we should find ourself, as we discussed the other night, in the context of finding Krishna, the self of the self. In fact, that will give us much impetus to find ourselves. We can know Krishna by knowing ourself to some extent. Before that, we can know theoretically. And hopefully that theory, what we learn theoretically, will be impetus for us to do that which is necessary to know thyself and thereby know krishna we should this is a very of course important point we are not here to theorize only about krishna and fill our heads with some kind of information this information that we are sharing is only as valuable to us as it fuels our spiritual practice and as our practice is fueled then we'll make progress and we'll make progress in a in a straight way Line, Mabra Vuistar, from beyond the Brahmanda, go beyond the universe to touch the self, Viraj, Brahman, Vaikuntha, Goloka, all these planes we'll have to pass through. Because we heard something about Krishna, we heard something about Rasa, and anything we're discussing to some extent, we have not gone there. A fellow asked me a question the other day on the Sangha. He said, I think it was wrong for me to attempt to enter a path in which knowing God is first and knowing the self is second. He was talking about Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He said, I think it would be better if I had learned about the self first and then about God because God is the self of the self. <laughs> Heard that one before. I wrestled with that Right, I know. But... Um, I answered to him that we'll get the most impetus to know the Self, our Self, by hearing about the Supreme Self, whom we can have a relationship with, and the fullness of our Self will only be known in relation to God. What is its position, our Self, in relation to God, is the only way we can fully know our Self. Well, it's true. In Vaishnavism we should be concerned with knowing the Self. We should see, we should look to see that in our, the context of our hearing and chanting about Krishna, we come to know our Otherwise, we're not making any progress. I said, therefore, Prabhupada used to stress to us that you're not the body. I said, myself, I'm stressing on a lower level that we should become human beings. Because I found, in many devotional circles, a lot of theory and a lot of almost insensitivity and lack of even basic human qualities. And I would see human qualities in others who were non-devotees and think, why the devotees don't have those human qualities a Godbrother of mine was once standing on the balcony of the Calcutta temple. And down below there were some beggars, and they were deformed. You see many people like that in India. And Prabhupada came on the balcony, he turned to him and said, Prabhupada, sometimes I feel sorry for these people. As if to say, I know it's Maya, and it's just their karma, but sometimes I feel sorry for them. And Prabhupada said, why only sometimes? So... Human compassion is, of course, the shadow of real compassion, which involves knowing the soul. But if we have the latter, knowing the soul would speak of God, then the former will also be present within us. The idea is then, if we are progressing in devotional service, we should care what to speak of for one another as devotees, for all living beings. Mahaprabhu said, Amanina manadena, respect for everyone. This verse, Trinada piso tarora pisahisthana amanina amanadena kirtaniya sadahari This, Kaviraj Goswami said, wear it like a garland around your neck and chant the holy name of Krishna. It means one should be more humble than a blade of grass, one should be more tolerant than a tree, not expect any honor for oneself, give honor to others. This is the crux. This is If you cannot pass through this, there's a saying in Bengal, I heard about radha prem Radhabhav, the high idea of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and I wanted to be a Gaudiya of Aishnav. And then I heard this verse, Pisunichana," and I knew it was not possible. We have to put these two, two things together. To get that high thing, highest thing, we have to become more humble than a blade of grass, more tolerant than a tree. And as I've said many times, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu did not sit down and think, let me write a poem. How does this rhyme? Trees, grass, uh, you know, it's not like... That. The grass spoke to him, he said, Why aren't you tolerant? Why aren't you humble like us? The trees spoke to him, Why aren't you tolerant like us? We walk on the grass, we see trees all the time, and we never once think. We look at the grass, we think, oh, I should be humble like a blade of grass. Look at the tree, I, think, I should be tolerant like a tree. It practically never enters our mind. Mahabrabhu was so Krishna conscious. <laughs> His name means Krishna conscious, Chaitanya. The world spoke to him like this. In the language of srida the environment became friendly. It is friendly, but we can't read it like that, because we're going against the current. So we have to try to become real humans, well-adjusted humans. We have to care for one another and not be artificial in our practice. My good friend and godbrother Markandeya Prabhu told a story the other day to one of my disciples who related it to me. He said that he was in the temple in New York many years ago, and there was a fellow there in in the lobby who was reading a book, and Markandeya Prabhu had been preaching to him, and he was interested. The philosophy seemed very interesting to him. And then suddenly Markandeya's parents came to visit him from Long Island, his Jewish mother and father. Mark, his mother said, and went up to give him a big kiss. And he said, no, no, I can't kiss you. It's Maya. <laughs> so his father said, Mark, I just want to know one thing. Why can't you kiss your mother? <laughs> what kind of religion is it? <laughs> and so the guy in the corner took the book and threw it in the trash and walked out. He said, what is that? He said, this is some kind of fascism. <laughs> You can't kiss your mother. What kind of religion is that? (laughs) So we can't, uh, this this is a very high thing, and we have to try to understand it properly, and we can't, um, we don't want to artificially embrace it. Otherwise, we'll look uh, out of step to people in in general in in ways that we shouldn't. In some ways, we will, when we're skipping down the road and arms in the air and dancing and, and chanting. But all that should translate out into dealings with one another and humans that are, in the language of Prabhupada, ideal, exemplary. That's one of the lower reasons for wearing this kind of cloth. I'm going to India tomorrow, with some of you know, so on the way down we stopped at a store. We needed to get some things. And of course, the three monks walk in there and we were the center of everyone's attraction in many respects. So I told one of the devotees, now you have to be on your, your best behavior, you see. Mm-hmm. So then one sense, the lower sense of wearing the cloth is for that. It's an impetus. It will help us. And of course, it will remind other people something spiritual. They're monks. So, we should be ideal. Whether we're dressed or undressed or in the dress or out of the dress, we should be ideal persons. If we expect to enter Goloka Vrindavan, we have to pass through that. And that they're not the body and all those mirage, Vaikuntha, it's all inside. That is the idea. It's all inside Goloka all those things and more. It's like we read Bhagavad Gita, and as we're going through, we find everything that Krishna talks about. Religious life, be responsible, do your duty, be detached while doing it, Nishkam yoga get knowledge, Gyan, renunciation of action, then Dhyan, all these things, and all that can be achieved from them. The whole build-up of the first six chapters is to tell us, in the very end, all these things are inside of what it means to be a devotee. They're not the chapters to skip over because they're not directly about devotion. They're telling us in one way or another that these things are all inside of devotion. You can get all those things and much more by devotion, but we should see that these things are all coming in us. There's the grace of Mahaprabhu that we can start with bhakti, but we should know that Mahaprabhu administered, taught bhakti in a practical way we are not all to go today after getting initiated and simply sit at Radhakund and chant Hare Krishna day and night. Neither is it possible for us. So there's a progression within Bhakti that's very similar. We should do some time of a Gaudiya Gita and just explain Bhagavad Gita in relation to the, directly to the devotional practices and the evolution of the development within Bhakti. you find a wonderful parallel. Step by step. Gradually we should try to progress in a practical way, in a realistic way. In the beginning, therefore, of our progress, we have to become acquainted with the divinity of Krishna. And this is the point we're making. of What significance is the Bhagavad Gita in all this Upanishadic wisdom spoken by the dear Prashantanayaka Krishna of Dwarka to us who are interested in the Lalita Krishna of Vrindavan who is in no mood to speak Upanishadic wisdom? Our interest is because in Bhagavad Gita we can find out better than we can practically in any other book, one of the best books, if not the best, to find out about the divinity of Krishna. What does he say in the essential four shlokas? It's all there in the one sloka. The answer to our, the question we ended with last night, Krishna has answered it in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, I'm the source of everything. Hamsa Vasya Prabhupada. Narayan comes from me, the Paramatma comes from me. Brahman is my effulgence, the whole material world, Hamza The Veda comes everything comes from me. The Veda comes from me. The Guru comes from me. I am the Guru. And by knowing these things, he says, What? Those who know this about me, Buddha Bhava Raga Ragabhava Samantita, they worship me with feeling. With the feeling, if we know Swayam Bhagavan is Krishna, we know why and how, we know his divinity, we know the tattva about Krishna, this Aishwarya is not divorced from the Madhurya. Krishna is the valuable jewel and a black backdrop, he shines that much more. Krishna is God, but if you put him in a simple setting like Vrindavan, oh then, so sweet, so charming. But we don't want to lose sight, at least not right away, of the fact that he's God. So it's important for us Christians, teachers in Bhagavad Gita, to know about his divinity, truth about him. That will give us the kind of impetus necessary to attain the kind of bhav that the Gaudiya charges are so interested in. Therefore, they have taken some time to deal with Bhagavad Gita. They have not told us, so don't waste your time on Bhagavad Gita. You know Prabhupada used to say, oh, there are those people who claim to be great devotees and say, oh, they're not interested in this book or that book, yeah. they're not interested in Bhagavad-gita. Prabhupada did not think very highly of that kind of preaching. And our Gaudiya Charges have, some of them have paid attention to Bhagavad-gita. So it appears that the Dira Prashanta Nayaka of dwarka is of some interest to those who are interested in Dira Lita Nayaka of, of Braj. And in the Gaudiya commentaries, of course, here and there, we've heard the uh, Gaudiya Charges make a connection, a more direct connection. I'm giving a philosophical connection. By knowing the divinity of Krishna, on no uncertain terms, that will be very helpful, if not essential, for fueling our practice, such that we can get the kind of Bhav to love Him like the Vrajabhasis do, like no one else loves Him. This is the philosophical connection. But there's also we can make some connection between Braj and Kurukshetra in terms of feeling. So, in this edition, we've subtitled it, Feeling and Philosophy of Bhagavad Gita. Let me read on. This edition of the Bhagavad Gita follows the tradition of Gaudiya Vedanta. It is the Gaudiyas, disciples of Sri Chaitanya, who first conceived of explaining the Upanishadic subject matter in the language of aesthetics. Drawing on the Taitariya Upanishad's dictum, Raso Vaisaha, the Absolute is aesthetic rapture, Rasa. Rupa Goswami proceeded to elaborate on the heart of Godhead's life and love. He envisioned the Absolute as the perfect lover, the irresistible Krishna of the sacred literature, and with startling insight explained the complexities of this person. To date, no one has even attempted to tell us more about the personality of Godhead. Well, This is a, a claim of the Godias, and it's accurate. This is where Godi Vaishnavism really excels, takes off. I once, it was in the Denver airport, and I offered a gentleman a copy of the Srimad Bhagavatam, and he said, I'm not interested in that. I said, okay. He obviously wanted to say something. I said, So I let him. I said, well, why not? He said, because in my religion, we know about the social life of God. I was very much appreciative to hear that. In other words, what he was saying is, I don't need your book about God. In my religion, we know about the social life of God. How do you like that? We already know something about God. Such intimate things. That was the implication of his response. I said... Wow, really? Well, what is his social life? Then he said, well, he had a son. He sent his son to earth. His son's name was Jesus. And he went on like this. I said, that is fantastic. I said, that is really wonderful. But let me point one thing out to you so that you might reconsider. This book talks about his father, his wife, his lovers, (laughs) his (laughs) friends, (laughs) his animals. And everything about him. Please take it. <laughs> he brought the book. Srimad Bhagavatam. This is the speciality of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. <laughs> and as we discussed the other night, we owe it to Rupa Goswami, who has given this kind of explanation. The Vedanta was really never explained like this before. This is what, in many respects, distinguishes us from the great Vaishnava charges who came before Chaitanya Mahabhu, Madhva, and uh, Ramanuja. They attempted to, as all Vaishnava charges have, to Dismiss the Advaita of Shankar, but they did so in a different approach, a very Vedantic approach. Rupa Goswami's approach is not Vedantic, but he, as we said earlier, he took this aesthetic angle. After all, it's not, it's certainly Upanishadic Rasa saha. He, he sought to explain the meaning of this. The Absolute is Rasa. In a very wonderful way, he's shown us. And those other Vaishnavas, as we mentioned earlier, oh, Krishna's position is superior to Narayana even, from this angle of vision. So this is what the gaudiyas are all about. And still they are interested in Bhagavad-gita, which is very Upanishadic. Since Krishna of Braja is the acme of God's incarnation, the feature of God in which all others are included, the gaudiyas have mostly written about him. This is our Braj krishna They've written so many things about him. Their commentaries on Śrīmad-Bhāgavatam are well-known, as are many of their original compositions. However, they have also written on the Upanishads where the love sports of Krishna are, if at all present, well concealed. You know, the Gaudiya commentaries on Srimad Bhagavatam are THE commentaries. In Braj, every Sampradaya that gives Bhagavat Sapta, whether they be Mayabadi's, whether they be Nimbarkis, or Balabas or whomever, they are all using the commentaries of Sanatana Goswami and Vishwanachakvati Thakur. Our Sampradaya has brought out more about Krishna than any other Sampradaya. Who knows Krishna the most? That's whoever loves Krishna the most. The gaudis say such flattering things about Krishna. They must know him. The more you know him, the more you love him. This is uh, besides scripture and so forth that we can invoke some simple logic what godhiyas say about Krishna must be true. Imagine, if you want to argue with the idea, as some Vaishnavas do from other groups, that Krishna is not superior to Narayan, eh? how much do you love Krishna? Those who are saying, oh, even Narayan is coming from him, they, they must have more love for Krishna, they must know Krishna more. Baladi Vidya wrote Gobindabhasha, the Gaudiya commentary on Vedanta sutras of Badarayana of in which he seeks to demonstrate the concordance of the Shruti, the Upanishads, with Gaudiya theology. Let me explain that to you, those of you who are not familiar with some of these literatures. The Vedanta Sutras of Vyasadeva are aphorisms compiled by Vyas that seek to demonstrate how all these Upanishads are saying the same thing, that they're organic and they all work together and they have a point and a conclusion, just like... Prabhupada would sometimes meet someone from the West who would say, Oh, I've read Bhagavad Gita, and what would Prabhupada ask them? you know the conclusion? And often they would say, well, no, there was a conclusion. Isn't it?" one of those, you just open it, you find a verse, and nice poem, and profound for the moment? And so, no, there is a conclusion. And so, with all of the Vedic literature, it all comes to a, a point. So, Vyasa's sutras were an attempt to demonstrate that. And then, of course... Different groups, different sampradayas try to demonstrate what that concordance was all about, what he was saying it was by commenting on the sutras. Now we don't aren't too concerned with commenting on the sutras. Why, Brahma? The the sutras. Because we have Srimad Bhagavatam, and it it's a natural commentary on Vedanta sutras. Still, we've got a commentary from Baladev as mentioned here, and of course, there's a story that goes with this. this you know, most of you are probably familiar with. In Jaipur, then there was some argument because the practice was that Govindaji from Vrindavan was there and he was being offered prashad, Bhogan and then his prashad was being offered to Narayan. And not only that, he was standing with Radha, and some people didn't understand all this Gaudiya theology very well. Some very stalwart Vaishnavs from different sects, and so they opposed this, and the young Baladev was dispatched to Vrindavan to deal with it. And to deal with him, they said, Well, if you want to talk with us and defend your position, where's your commentary on the sutras? Again, this was kind of the standard. Rupa Goswami didn't bother to write a commentary on the sutras. He took a whole different angle for explaining the nature of the Absolute. So they knew he didn't have a commentary, and they thought, this way they can dismiss him. If you don't have a commentary on the Sutra, then we don't even bother with you. In other words, the idea is, anybody can come and talk anything, but write it down, so we can get a hold of you, and we can say, you changed it over here, and you said that over there, and put it in the book. Once you write it down, then then we can look it over, read it upside down and backwards, and, (laughs) and see what your position is, and how strong it is. So they said, you don't have a commentary. They knew we didn't. They asked, where's your commentary? So, of course, he said, I'll have to come back with it, and... By the grace of Govinda, he came with a commentary. Govinda Bhasha. Govinda Speaks. And as the story goes, I think maybe in a week or so, he had a whole commentary on Vedānta-sūtra, Govinda Bhasha. In that Vedānta-sūtra commentary, he gives the Gaudi position, and he quotes Bhagavad-gītā in many places. So, while the did this, he also wrote a commentary on the Bhagavad-gītā itself, as did his predecessor, Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur. Before them... Krishna Kaviraj Goswami cited the Gita more than thirty times in his classic Chaitanya Charitamrita, and his predecessor, Jiva Goswami, cited it profusely in his seminal Satsandarbha. The conclusion? Evidently, dear Prasanta Krishna of the Gita is quite relevant to devotees of dear Lita Krishna. Do you follow? So we should not skip over Bhagavad Gita. Vishwanath Chakratitaka was the first in the Gaudi lineage to write an entire commentary on the Gita. He is most well known for his highly esoteric explanations of the inner significance of Krishna's leelas of love with the gopis of Braja. Yet it would seem that he found it important to remind us that Gopi Krishna is, after all, God, even when suppressing this aspect of himself for the sake of his intimate leelas. We must first understand the metaphysical truth, tatva, concerning Krishna, as the source of the world and all souls, before we forget the world and lose ourselves in divine love of Krishna. Among the sacred texts of the Hindus, no book is better suited to give this teaching than the Bhagavad Gita. Known also as Gita Upanishad, due to its having been spoken directly by God himself, Bhagavad Gita is the essence of the Upanishads. If one wants to understand the entirety of the thousand verses in the Upanishadic canon, one need only understand the 700 verses of the Bhagavad Gita.